Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Tuesday the 30th of August 2022 News. Holyrood watchdog predicts falling population and low economic growth for 50 years. This article is by Tom Gordon. Scotland's population is forecast to shrink by almost a fifth over the next 50 years as its economic growth lags consistently behind the UK's, Holyrood's budget watchdog has said. The Scottish Fiscal Commission, SFC, also said Scotland faced particularly acute challenges because of its demographics. The SNP said the predictions showed the staggering cost of continued Westminster control and underlined the need for independence. Ahead of a full report on the tax and spending implications, of Scotland's population trends due out in the spring, the Commission issued a first set of projections today. The body, whose figures inform Scottish Government spending decisions, projected Scottish GDP growth would average 0.9% a year from 2028-29 to 2071-72. This is 0.5 points less than the 1.4% GDP growth per year forecast for the UK as a whole. Assuming low inward migration because of Brexit, the SFC forecast Scotland's population would shrink considerably with fewer working age people available to pay the taxes needed to support a growing elderly population. Its projection is for Scotland's population to fall from the current peak of 5.5 million to 4.6 million, a drop of 900,000 or 16% between 2022 and 2072, with low birth rate the key driver. That compares to a 400,000 person increase in Scotland's population since the late 1990s. In comparison, the Office for Budget Responsibility predicts the UK's population will fall by just 2% over the same period, from 67.1 million to 65.9 million. If both predictions hold true, Scotland would be home to just 7% of the UK's population by 2072, down from 8.7% in 1997 and 8.1% today. The total number of births in Scotland is projected to fall by 36% over the next 50 years, with 17,100 fewer births projected in 2072 than in 2022. 
This is as a result of the population shrinking in combination with a low long-term fertility rate. On current trends, the proportion of Scotland's population aged 65 and over will increase from 20% today to 32% by 2072. However, the proportion of working age people, 16 to 64 in Scotland, helping to fund services for those elderly people is forecast to decline from 64% today to 56% by 2072. The proportion of under 16s in Scotland is due to fall from 16% today to 12% by 2072. The SFC said this implied tax revenues in Scotland per head were likely to grow more slowly in Scotland than in the rest of the UK, meaning less income tax for the Holyrood budget. The SFC report said these demographic changes will have implications for the economy and income tax revenues. There will also be implications more broadly for Scottish Government funding and spending in the future. It added, our projections show that Scotland faces similar, though more pronounced challenges to other high-income nations and to the UK in terms of ageing population. The report also predicted that Scotland's population would be on average 7.6 years older in 2072 than it is currently compared to 6.1 years in the UK. Commission Chair Professor Graham Roy said while Scotland is no different from most high-income economies in facing demographic pressures, those facing Scotland are particularly acute. Our fiscal sustainability report next year will explore how these will affect the Scottish budget in the future. Politicians and those delivering public services will need to consider how to respond to these future fiscal pressures. Liberal Democrat MSP Willie Rennie said these stark figures show that entire industries are likely to find themselves in peril from social care to fruit picking. The Scottish Government must do better at making Scotland a more attractive place to live and work. With an ageing population, Scotland and indeed the whole of the UK needs immigration in order to flourish. That's why arbitrary Conservative immigration plans are so misguided. We run the risk of starving our economy and the NHS of the talented people they require. SNP MSP Michelle Thompson said these projections show the grim reality that Scotland faces as a consequence of a future under Westminster control, underlining how vital it is for people to have a choice of a better future as an independent country. Whilst Northern Ireland's economy reaches a 15-year high as a part of the world's largest single market, Scotland is being left to suffer the impact of Westminster and its damaging Brexit obsession, leading to a predicted 50 years of economic decline and stagnation for Scotland, despite Scots overwhelmingly voting to remain in the EU and the single market. This is not the future Scotland wants or deserves, and that is why people voted to have the choice 
of a future where we can build a better, more prosperous and independent country away from the failing Westminster system and impact of continued Brexit chaos. This article is by Tom Gordon. Recorded from the Herald on the 31st of August 2022. From the sports section. Recorded by Amy. The Scottish Premiership free agent still looking for a club with transfer window ending by Aidan Smith. The Scottish transfer window is coming to close, but there are still a number of free agents looking for a new home. SFA ruling means free agents who have not previously registered with a club this summer will also be permitted to sign beyond the midnight deadline on Thursday, September 1st. Loan deals will still be possible for clubs out with the Scottish Premiership if the player is moving from a higher level. Here is a list of the free agents who left Premiership clubs at the end of last season. Could your club snap up one? Dylan McGuch, age 29, left Aberdeen, midfielder. Tom Rogic, age 29, left Celtic, midfielder. Ryan Mullen, age 21, left Celtic, goalkeeper. Charlie Adam, age 36, left Dundee, midfielder. Christy Elliott, age 31, left Dundee, defender. Kevin McLeod, age 33, left Dundee, midfielder. Adrian Sporley, age 27, left Dundee United, defender. Maxime Baimo, age 31, left Dundee United, striker. Florent Hoti, age 21, left Dundee United, midfielder. Mark McNulty, age 29, left Dundee United, slash shredding, striker. Liam Grimshaw, age 27, left Motherwell, defender. Victor Nearnold, age 31, left Motherwell, defender. Harry Payton, age 24, left Ross County, midfielder. Ben Williamson, age 21, left Ross County, defender. Nadir Sivchi, age 30, left St. Johnson, striker. Effie Ambrose, age 33, left St. Johnson, defender. Sander Clark, age 30, left St. Johnson, goalkeeper. Jamal Hector Ingram, age 23, left St. Johnson, striker. That article was by Aidan Smith. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 31st of August 2022. From the Voices section, Ian McWhorter, The world gas price is rigged, so why not use our own? By Ian McWhorter, columnist. Even if we're to extract every last drop of oil and gas from the North Sea, said the Scottish Net Zero Secretary Michael Matheson last week, it would have no impact on the wholesale price of gas. Consequently, he went on, Anyone who thinks increasing gas production would ease the energy crisis is kidding themselves. It wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to our energy bills. Evidently, the UK government disagrees. Even before she becomes PM next week, Liz Truss is crying, drill baby drill. The business secretary, why don't we have an energy secretary, quasi quarting, has made clear that Ms Truss will approve a series of oil and gas drilling licences in the North Sea, as part of a long-term plan to ensure Britain's energy security. She also wants to speed up extraction from existing fields. Our near neighbour, Norway, is doing the same. Indeed, the Norwegian government never stopped drilling for oil and gas, despite its commitment to net zero, and its wealth of renewable energy. We depend on Norway for 30% of our gas, so it would seem to make sense to use our own instead of being forced to pay the exorbitant prices set indirectly by Vladimir Putin? Well, you might think so, but not in the crazy world of international energy. 
We are apparently powerless before the might of the international gas market. Nor, according to Mr Matheson's logic, is there any point in hastening the development of Scotland's wind energy. That would not affect the world market price either. Indeed, to paraphrase the Minister, if you harnessed all the wind on and off Scotland's shores tomorrow, it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to our energy bills, because wind is pegged to gas too. Though, curiously, Mr Matheson is not saying we should just leave it in the air. The UK is one of the few countries in the world taking the transition to renewable energy seriously, according to the International Energy Agency. It also says that fossil fuels will be needed for some time yet, as we have discovered to our cost since Russia invaded Ukraine. Suddenly, security of supply is Europe's number one concern. Nicola Sturgeon used to say that Scotland is self-sufficient in renewable energy, a claim almost as misleading as the £350 million in the Brexit bus. As Full Fact pointed out, only about half of our energy consumed in Scotland is renewable, and much of that is nuclear. Most of us have gas central heating boilers. Then there are the 3 million cars. But she is right that in about a decade and a half, Scotland will be a renewable powerhouse, but not if the stuff is still priced in gas. One of the untold stories of the energy crisis is the way Scotland's environmental lairds and wind farm owners are making even bigger windfall profits right now than the oil majors. That's because the price they sell is pegged at the iniquitous world price, which is set by the assorted dictators and potent potentates who control our supply of gas and oil. Go tell the people of Shetland. For the last decade, their island has been the poster child of renewable energy because it enjoys the strongest winds in the UK. Yet Shetland consumers are facing bills of £10,000 this winter. They'll each need to earn hundred grand a year to keep out of fuel poverty. Environmentalists point to Shetland as evidence of how easy it would be for Scotland to do without fossil fuels. Not with our energy market, this isn't. This is completely insane. The idea that this country shouldn't generate energy from its own prodigious hydrocarbon and renewable resources is clearly nonsensical. It is obvious that using a nation's domestic energy supply is preferable to importing it. And not just because then Vladimir Putin can't shut it off. Quite apart from the strategic considerations, importing oil and gas by tanker from pariah regimes like Russia, Saudi Arabia and Qatar greatly increases our carbon footprint. Moreover, oil and gas revenues, £13 billion this year, can be used to subsidise household bills. I am mystified that this has not been taken into account when people talk of the cost of halting this year's price rise. Ditto the tax revenues from the 100,000 most well-paid jobs in the energy sector. These will be lost if we continue to rely on exports. Finally, having your own supply means you can always renegotiate the market price, as in America where shale gas has kept prices down. Britain used to be self-sufficient in oil and gas until about 2003. Most of the hydrocarbons have gone. But as the SNP regularly reminds us, there is still about 20 billion barrels in Scottish waters, enough to keep the UK going for about 15 years. If it is so worthless, as Mr Matheson says, you wonder why nationalists claim it has been stolen from Scotland? Indeed, why did the SNP base its programme for independence in Scotland's oil and gas for fully 40 years? Only last week, Deputy First Minister John Swinney said that he expected £13 billion in oil and gas revenues this year has transformed the prospects for an independent Scottish economy. But, 
According to Mr Matheson, Mr Swinney is just kidding himself. Of course, in one narrow sense, the net zero secretary is right. The energy we consume, even green energy, is charged at the same wholesale price, the price per therm of gas. This is for complex reasons, mainly to do with the fact that when the wind doesn't blow, we need energy, and that means gas, since we close the coal mines. Whisper it, but some coal power stations may be needed this winter to prevent blackouts, as is the case in Germany. Half our power still comes from gas, and so everything is related to its marginal cost. It is surely time to challenge this market logic. It is being exploited by Putin in an unconscious alliance with the big oil producers. It will be up to Liz Trust to re- rebalance it. And that was an opinion piece by E. McWhorter. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 1st of September 2022, from the news section, a £1 million winter fuel deal to support hard-pressed Glasgow households by Deborah Anderson, Assistant News Editor. A £1 million fuel support programme will be rolled out to hard-pressed Glasgow households from next month. The Glasgow Fuel Support Project will help individuals and families with top-up payments and advice and assistance, as well as some debt support. The funding was allocated as part of the city budget agreed earlier this year and will now be distributed to some of the city's most financially challenged households at the start of October, following the appointment of a leading anti-poverty group as a partner in the scheme. It comes just weeks after households across Glasgow received a £105 gift card designed to help with the cost of living crisis. The gift cards, issued by Glasgow City Council, could be redeemed at city businesses that are registered with the scheme, which is the UK's biggest. On Thursday, City Treasurer Councillor Ricky Bell said the fund put £1 million directly into the pockets of those Glaswegians hardest hit by the cost of living crisis and adds to the work underway to assist the most affected. In recent weeks, over 84,000 gift cards with a value of £105 have been distributed to households across the city which receive council tax support and which can be spent in hundreds of shops across the city. The holiday food programme was operated over the summer for the fourth year while the council is working with partners to introduce welcome spaces, essentially public buildings where citizens will be offered warmth and support over the winter months. Councillor Bell said, We have a responsibility in local government to do what we can with the resources we have to help alleviate the impacts of this crisis on those who feel it most. This fund is not a solution, but we have no choice but to support the people during this emergency as best we can and the fuel support project will make a meaningful contribution to many Glaswegian households. The the decision by the City Administration Committee will see the WISE Group allocate the grants on behalf of the Council. The WISE Group will work with Glasgow Helps, a new service offering free and confidential support, information and advice to citizens, giving access to the right support at the right time and place. The Council will work with organisations in the City, including the Glasgow Council for the Voluntary Sector, to ensure residents are aware of and have potential access to the funding. In April, household energy bills rose by 54%, with further significant rises expected in October and then in January. The committee also agreed to extend the fuel support project if additional support is provided to the council from the UK or Scottish governments.
Councillor Bell added, The rising energy bills will continue to affect all of us, with the poorest households hardest hit. In the months since the budget matters have got considerably worse, the crisis is now escalating. If we are to receive additional funding, then we will extend our support in this vital area. And that was an article by Deborah Anderson. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 1st of September 2022, from the news section, Nicola Sturgeon to personally intervene in council worker pay crisis talks by Andrew Learmonth. Nicola Sturgeon is to chair talks with union leaders this afternoon in a bid to end the council worker strike. The SNP leader's intervention comes as the first tranche of strike action comes to an end and the clean-up operation gets underway. Local authorities have mountains of rubbish piling up in their streets to tackle. Both Glasgow and Aberdeen councils have warned residents to expect a significant delay to all bin collections due to the extensive backlog of work. That backlog could yet grow. Unless there is a breakthrough in the talks, refuse workers will work for walk out for eight days next week. They will be joined by some colleagues in schools and early year workers, with union members taking part in a three-day protest in some areas. Ms Sturgeon has already warned that all options for making more funding available for pay have been exhausted. The First Minister tweeted, If we could go further we would, but at saying Scotland's budget is finite. The latest offer, made by Cosla on Monday, was rejected as unions urged it to make a flat rate deal as opposed to one based on percentage increase to current wages. According to the Scottish Government, the offer included a payment of at least £1,925 for council staff, with those earning £20,000 receiving £2,000. But Unite said the payment could be as low as £989 for some employees, with 85% receiving between £1,925 and £2,000, and any payment would not be recurring. Unite's regional officer, Wednesday Dunsmore, told BBC Radio Scotland she will use the meeting with the SNP leader to demand a fair and decent pay rise for all workers. She said, We're hoping she's intervening to get a resolution to this crisis we are in. Our members don't want to be in strike any more than anyone else would want our members to be in strike, but that is the position they've been forced to take. Unions have already rejected a 5% pay rise offered by local government body COSLA, with Ms Dusmore insisting the current offer shows disregard for the lowest paid. She continued, What we want is a fair and decent pay rise. Our claim is £3,000 flat rate. Right now they are offering £2,000 to the highest paid workers, but for others they are offering far less, but with a cash incentive or a cash payment. The cash payment will disappear quite quickly with tax and insurance. If I was COSLA or the Scottish Government, I would definitely look at consolidating that into pay, because then it would be worth something today, tomorrow and in the future. If no deal can be reached, Ms Dunmore said unions, already warned of a possible winter of discontent, could escalate their action. The industrial action next week is three days in schools in early years, and in waste is eight days, she said. What happens after that is the unions will regroup and will look to escalate this further, so that could have further impacts on services across Scotland. She added, 
our members are very resolute in what they're looking for. They cannot afford to work in poverty. So we're having to make plans and a strategy as to meet the needs of our members. Ms Sturgeon's political rivals, rivals criticised the First Minister for taking so long to get involved in the negotiations. The SNP leader has been mocked for taking part in five different shows at the Edinburgh Festivals. Her final appearance was on Monday evening with an interview with the succession actor Brian Cox. Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross tweeted, Breaking news! The Edinburgh Festival is over, so Nicola Sturgeon now has time to deal with the mess she's made of Scotland. And that article is by Andrew Learmonth. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of September 2022. From the sports section. Recorded by Amy. Emma Raducanu falls at first hurdle in US Open title defence. By the Herald Sport. Emma Raducanu's US Open title defence ended at the first hurdle with a straight sets loss to veteran Frenchwoman Elise Cornet. It was a far cry from the events of 12 months ago as the 19-year-old made too many errors on a windy night in New York and fell to a 6-3, 6-3 defeat. Raducanu will drop to around 80 in the rankings, but although she would certainly have wanted to go further, there may be a sense of relief that this moment is over and she can attempt to build more solid foundations for her tennis career. Naomi Osaka has been given the primetime evening slot on Arthur Ashe, so Raducanu instead began her title defence on a breezy and initially at least sparsely populated Louis Armstrong Stadium. The fans that were inside gave Raducanu a hearty reception as they welcomed back their most unlikely of champions. Virginia Wade, who watched Raducanu's success last year with astonishment, was back at courtside, while the major difference in the Kent Teenagers support camp now is the presence of Russian Dmitry Tursunov, who she is trialling as she looks for a permanent coach. The wind impacted the contest from the start, with Cornet struggling on serve as Raducanu broke in the first game only to hand it back with errors of her own. Those errors quickly began to mount up, betraying the tough time Raducanu was had on court over the last 50 weeks, now the hunted rather than the hunter. The teenager has found it particularly difficult to recapture the same free-swinging approach that left her opponents flat-footed, but spoke in the build-up of a determination to be on the front foot. She had not lost more than five games in any set last year, but Cornette came out on the right side of three successive breaks to lead 5-3 in the opener and showed excellent powers of defence to clinch the set. The Frenchwoman revealed in January she was considering retiring at the end of 2022, but has now it's been one of the best seasons of her career, with a long-awaited first slam quarter-final in Australia before she ended Iga Swatek's 37-match unbeaten run at Wimbledon. She will now continue until at least the French Open next year, and playing in a record 63rd Grand Slam, this was just the sort of occasion she relishes. Raducano took a medical time-out to have blisters in her fingers attended to, and dropped serve again to start the second set. Cornet was given away plenty of free points though through double faults, though, and with the Frenchwoman unhappy to see the roof closing during play, Raducano reeled off three games in a row. But she could not hold on to the advantage, Cornet breaking back with the wickedest of drop shots and pulling away to claim victory. That article was by the Herald Sport. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of September 2022, from the sports section, recorded by Amy. When does the summer transfer window close in Scotland? By Ewan Payton. 
The summer transfer window for 2022 is coming to an end. Clubs up and down the country now face a race against time to put their finishing touches to their squads. While some teams have concluded their business until at least January, others undoubtedly have some late deals to get over the line. Here's all the details you need to know about when the window closes for the summer of 2022. When does the transfer window in Scotland close? The transfer window in Scotland closes at midnight tonight, Thursday, September 1st. The window had initially been due to close on Wednesday, August 31st. However, due to Premier Sports Club Cup fixtures, SPFL clubs were granted an additional day to get their business done. The English deadline is 11pm meaning any cross-border deals will need to be concluded sooner. Can players still be signed after the deadline? Loan deals will still be possible for clubs out with the top flight if the player is moving from a higher level. For example, a Champions Club could, play, could sign a player from the Premiership on loan after Thursday's deadline. Free agents who have not previously registered with a club this summer will also be permitted to sign beyond the midnight deadline. That article was by Ewan Payton. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 1st September 2022. Voices. Neil Mackay. Begum shows why we shouldn't be surprised at the barbarous immorality of intelligence services. Back when I hung out with spies and terrorists for a living, I'd often find myself sitting at my keyboard trying to find words to explain the abyss of immorality I'd found myself in. My reporting centred on British intelligence operations in Northern Ireland and Iraq. Collusion, black ops, the full gamut of the dirty war playbook. The most fitting metaphor I could employ was that British intelligence turned white into black, night into day. What was good became bad, sin was a virtue, and nothing mattered save the end result. Spying is essentially a utilitarian numbers game in which morality is irrelevant. Human beings are mere pieces on a chessboard. It's the policy of state-sanctioned murder by Britain's security forces in Northern Ireland, however, which best exemplifies our nation's desolate intelligence regime. Double agents would be recruited within loyalist and republican terror groups like the IRA or UDA. In order to ensure a constant stream of top-grade intelligence kept flowing to the British forces, these agents were allowed to continue operating as terrorists. If a terrorist suddenly stops killing or bombing, or every operation they're connected to fails, then they'll become suspected of treachery, and not only will intelligence dry up, but the asset will probably be found in a country lane with a bag over their head and a bullet in the brain, after they've been tortured first, obviously. To make matters worse, these terrorist double agents were sometimes even used as proxy assassins by the British state. Let's say British security forces found it impossible to take out Target X in the IRA. Well, double agent Y, in a loyalist terror group, could be past intelligence to carry out a hit on Target X. In some cases, double agents within the IRA were used to frame Republican targets the British state couldn't capture, thereby painting them as traitors and ensuring their execution. Scotland, incidentally, had its own starring role in this. The officer who ran the military intelligence outfit at the heart of these dirty war operations was Brigadier Gordon Kerr from Aberdeen, who'd later become Britain's military attaché in Beijing. 
Who says you don't get rewarded for doing the Queen's dirty work, eh? Many intelligence officers involved in this kind of activity went on to carry out operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. When I learned that rather terrible fact more than 20 years ago, my blood ran somewhat cold. If the use of proxy assassins and double agents in Northern Ireland was bad, what in God's name would it be like in Kabul or Baghdad? Well, today we've got a flavour of what our Western intelligence operations have been like in the Middle East. It's been uncovered that Shamina Begum, the so-called ISIS bride, was smuggled into Syria by a double agent working for Canadian intelligence, aged just 15. British authorities later covered up the operation. In 2015, Begum travelled to Syria via Turkey with two school friends. She was then trafficked by Mohammed al-Rashid, who was providing information to Canadian intelligence, while people smuggling for ISIS. Rashid had trafficked human beings to ISIS for eight months prior to helping Begum cross the border. Rashid passed intelligence on those he was smuggling to his Canadian handlers. He also gathered intelligence on ISIS locations, including the homes of Western jihadists. That was the real motive for allowing a vulnerable child to fall into terrorist clutches. Fools like Begum were the means by which intelligence could be gathered. Rashid was finally arrested in Turkey shortly after trafficking Begum. Rashid was recruited when he asked the Canadian Embassy in Jordan for asylum. He was told he'd get asylum if he collected intelligence on ISIS. After his arrest, Canada's government informed Britain of the operation. Both Canada and Britain then appear to have covered up the entire affair. The ghastly immorality of allowing a child to be trafficked to terrorists is bad enough. But for Britain to collude in the cover-up, leaving Begum to her fate, is surely near the very bottom of the abyss when it comes to the sins of Western intelligence. Yet matters get worse. Come 2019, Begum was in a refugee camp, asking to come home. The Hunter revoked her citizenship, saying she could never return. In 2020, the Court of Appeal ruled Begum should be permitted to return in order to contest the government's ruling. That decision was overturned by the Supreme Court, leaving Begum to rot. Would such decision have been taken if courts knew the truth? Begum had been married while underage to an ISIS fighter. All three of her children were dead by this time. Britain, together with Canada, New Zealand, America and Australia, operate what's known as the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, where the world's English-speaking nations share secrets. One for all and all for one, as the chaps say. Operations by Canadian intelligence, or British, American, Australian or New Zealand intelligence, differ little as we are all bonded together, following the same playbook, employing the same barbaric disregard for human life. I once asked a British intelligence officer how he could justify running a double agent in the IRA codenamed Steak Knife a man I subsequently identified as the leading Republican Freddy Scapatici. He told me that if an agent killed 100 people but saved 200 lives through the intelligence they passed, then the operation was a success. It's just a numbers game, he said to me. I know it's hard for normal people to see it that way, though. The term normal people stuck in my head. What is the intelligence service but an extension of government? 
and what is government but an extension of the people? I doubt many normal people, us, the citizens who elected our governments, condone operations which treat groomed 15-year-old schoolgirls like chips in a poker game. Begum was a stupid child who made a stupid deadly mistake, yet she was exploited as part of the war on terror. Allow her home. If she committed crimes overseas, prosecute her, but ensure the Canadian and British officials who knew what was happening to Begum share the dock alongside her. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. The Herald, Friday the 2nd of September 2022. News. COVID Scotland. Infections continue steady decline. This article is by Emma Sabliak. The number of Scots estimated to have been positive for COVID-19 has continued to fall in recent weeks. Around 1 in 55 people in private households north of the border were estimated to have the virus in the week to August the 23rd. Data from the Office for National Statistics, ONS, showed. This is equivalent to 1.82% of the population, or 96,000 people having the virus. It is a significant week-on-week drop after last Friday's figures showed 1 in 40 had the virus. Cases across England and Wales have also continued a downward trend since a peak earlier this year, caused by the BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants. However, the trend in Northern Ireland remains uncertain. Northern Ireland is the only one of the four UK nations where infection levels are estimated to have risen in the latest survey, with 35,800 people likely to have tested positive for COVID-19 in the week to August the 23rd, the equivalent of around 1 in 50. This is up from 26,400, or 1 in 70, in the week to August the 16th. The latest estimate for people testing positive in England is 893,300, or 1 in 60, down from 1.2 million, or 1 in 45. This is the first time the figure for England has dropped below 1 million since the week ending June the 2nd. In Wales, infections stood at 47,300 in the latest week, or 1 in 65 people, compared with 65,500 or 1 in 45 in the previous survey. The estimates are based on randomised testing carried out for the coronavirus, COVID-19, infection survey, CIS. Cara Steele, the senior statistician on the survey, said today's data shows infection levels continue to decrease across most of the UK, with the number of people with COVID-19 in England now estimated to be under 1 million for the first time since early June. Though there is an uncertain trend in Northern Ireland, it is too early to say if this marks the end of the recent decrease. We will monitor the data closely to understand the impact of schools returning across the UK. Hospital COVID-19 cases have also continued to fall but experts have warned the prevalence of the virus is set to grow in the autumn and winter. 
Hospital numbers during the latest wave also peaked at a lower level than earlier in the year. The number of patients in the UK testing positive for the virus reached 17,310 on July the 15th, compared with a peak of 20,559 on April the 6th during the BA2 wave. The latest available data for UK patients shows the number with coronavirus stood at 7,665 on August the 25th, down 16% week on week. Dr Jamie Lopez Bernal, consultant epidemiologist for immunisation and countermeasures at the UK Health Security Agency, said the latest COVID-19 indicators provide more positive news with continued low levels of case rates and hospitalisations and a sustained downward trend. The autumn booster will provide the best protection against COVID-19 this winter and we urge all those eligible, people aged 50 and over and those with underlying health conditions to come forward when called for their jab. The latest evidence shows effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines against hospitalisation with the BA4 and BA5 variant is similar to the protection given for BA2 and getting a booster dose six or more months after your first two jabs increases protection against hospitalisation by around 60%. Booster COVID vaccines will begin to be rolled out in Scotland from next week for the most vulnerable groups. This article is by Emma Sabliak. The Herald, Friday the 2nd of September 2022. News. SMP MP Tommy Shepherd hires law firm which won Clive Ponting case. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. An SMP MP has hired the firm of leading human rights lawyers who have won a string of high-profile cases including that of Clive Ponting, as he continues his legal battle with the UK government over secret polling on the union. Tommy Shepherd, MP for Edinburgh East, has been fighting to have the information released for years and previously won an Information Commissioner ruling to have the documents made public. Despite this, the Cabinet Office has refused to hand them over with Mr Shepherd taking the government to court to obtain the information. His legal team have now sent their written submission to the court, who could make a judgment without an oral hearing. Speaking to the Herald, Mr Shepherd revealed that he was able to instruct Bindman's as the solicitor to fight his case following a crowdfunding campaign which raised just under £10,000. The London-based firm was set up in 1974 as Bindman and Partners by the leading human rights lawyer Sir Geoffrey Bindman QC together with Wendy Mantle, Sarah Lee and William Blakeney. Over the years they have represented dozens of clients fighting to protect their rights and freedoms. Clients have included families affected by the Grenfell Fire and the Hillsborough football disaster as well as the late senior civil servant, Mr Ponting. 
Bindman's represented the Ministry of Defence official after leaked documents about the sinking of the Argentinian ship, the General Belgrano, in the Falklands War, which saw him arrested and charged with breaching the Official Secrets Act. Despite the judge directing the jury that they should convict him, Mr Pointing was acquitted. The firm was also involved in the successful extradition of the Chilean General Pinochet from London to his homeland, where he became the first head of state to be prosecuted for crimes against humanity. Sir Geoffrey Bindman has also backed the family of James Hanratty in their legal efforts to clear his name after the 25-year-old was one of the last people in the UK to be hanged in 1962. Mr Shepherd thanked people who donated to his crowdfunder and said he hoped the polls would finally be released by the Cabinet Office as previously instructed. The data, which will now be long out of date, dating back to 2018, relates to Westminster's public polling on attitudes towards the Union and Scottish independence, which was funded by the taxpayer. This is now not so much about polling and independence, but about the right to know. It should ring alarm bells with anyone concerned about what the government is doing, he said. I hope the judge will find in our favour. The Cabinet Office abide by that, and that will be the end of the matter, as it's been going on for far too long. But I am dealing here with a very belligerent and intransigent Cabinet Office. Mr Shepherd originally requested it through a Freedom of Information request in 2019, which was rejected by the Whitehall Department. Since then, the Cabinet Office has appealed the ruling to hand over the information twice. Alongside the 2019 request, the SNP has also called for a public inquiry after the Herald revealed the former Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove used funds for Covid contracts to conduct research into attitudes to the Union. Mr Shepherd MP said 14 months had passed since the Tribunal ruled the information he requested on polling into public attitudes towards the Union must be made public. The Cabinet Office have previously said that the UK government regularly commissions research across the UK to understand public attitudes and behaviours to inform our campaigns and policies. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 2nd of September 2022, from the sports section, British tennis stars keep up efforts at US Open as Nadal recovers to advance. Britain's fine US Open efforts continued on Thursday as Cameron Norrie and Dan Evans both won to make it four men through to the third round for the first time in professional tennis history. Rafael Nadal survived a scare in the final match of the day, coming from a set in 4-2 down to beat Fabio Fognini, while the women's talk seed Ida Zvajacek had a much more comfortable time of it against former champion Sloane Stevens. There was defeat, though, in the doubles for Serena and Venus Williams in what looks to be set to be their final appearance together. Norrie admits he is not a fan of the bright yellow shirt his clothing sponsor has supplied him for the tournament, but he is embracing the resemblance to cartoon character Spongebob Squarepants. One friend texted me saying, 
Well done, SpongeBob, said Nori. Then I stole that. I think it's tough to look good in the yellow, but I'm doing my best. SpongeBob, keep rolling. Serena takes her next singles challenge in the night session on Arthur Ashe, when she meets Australia's Aigla Tomljanovic in the third round. Earlier in the day, Andy Murray takes on Mattia Berrettini, bidding to reach the fourth round of a slam for the first time since hip surgery, while Jack Draper has another opportunity against 27th seed Karin Kuzvanov. Defending champion Daniel Medvedev takes on Wu Yibing, the first Chinese man to make the third round in New York, and Coco Gulf faces Madison Keys in an all-American showdown. And that article was unattributed. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 2nd of September 2022, from the sports section, ex-SFA linesman reveals Rangers and Celtic pressure that stopped him eating and sleeping by Aidan Smith. James B has explained the sheer relief for officials when an old firm fixture has passed by without any major controversies. The former linesman, which is now known as Specialist Assistant Referee, remembers his first experience of the fixture and the nerves in the pit of his stomach ahead of kick-off. B assisted referee Hugh Dallas on his Celtic Rangers debut and he recalls a restless night of sleep ahead of the fixture and not being able to eat prior to the match in the morning. He explained, The old firm is the one we all want to be on. You are terrified about the prospect, but really want to do the game. Hugh Dallas was the ref for the first old firm match I did. Normally, the officials meet up in a hotel about two and a half hours before kickoff, but Hugh said he wanted us there at 9.30am. I was up at 7am after about three hours of sleep. There were scrambled eggs on offer for breakfast at the hotel, but I couldn't eat. Neither could the other rookie old firm assistant. That was pretty normal for a Rangers v Celtic game. I felt sick in the morning, having had barely any sleep through worry, and then had to go out and perform at a very high level, despite having had no food in front of tens of thousands of people. At an old firm match, you can forget hearing the players, you can barely hear the whistle. In fact, all you hear is a big noise, where all individual insults melt into one so you don't hear them. In contrast, at, say, Cowdenbeath, you can hear everything. Doing the old firm is easier in some respects. In particular, you don't have to motivate yourself because your concentration and adrenaline levels are higher than for any other game. At the end of the match, so long as this has gone well, the relief is incredible. I know that fans of other teams will say that we should start see that after every game, but to be honest there is a difference. For a start, if you get something seriously wrong in an old firm, you can be in the media spotlight for weeks and papers have been known to send journalists off to an official workplace or neighbours to try to find the story. B was speaking to Alistair Blair in his book Stop the Match, We're Going to Arrest the Goalkeeper, Scottish Football Referees and the Influence of Scotland on the Laws of the Game. This book is available to purchase online. As told to Aidan Smith. The Herald, the 2nd of September and the Voices section. As leadership fails, there's no guard against the grim cost of living news by Katrina Stewart. There's a novel by an author I love, Kate Atkinson, called When Will There Be Good News? This phrase chants on a loop in my brain every day as I watch television or listen to the radio or pick up a newspaper or scroll through social media. 
The talking points are all gloom of a style that feels refreshingly unrelenting. Feels freshly unrelenting, I should say. During the pandemic, there was an effort to tell the nice tales alongside the desperately sad and a purposeful attempt to uncover silver linings, such as improvements that might stem from the changes made to the way certain things were done. Not this time. It's been said repeatedly that the cost of a living crisis will require the same sort of rapid mass political action as the pandemic. But where are the potential benefits here? It's nigh on impossible to see them. You can tell a story of kindness, perhaps about someone which means batch cooking and delivering hot food to their neighbours who are struggling. But this isn't heartwarming. This is appalling. Throughout the pandemic, there were regular radio segments chewing over the pros and cons of working from home. Would the new normal usher in an age of blended working that would see employers benefit from staff rested and revived by the opportunity for flexibility? Now the phone-in shows are asking workers if the energy crisis will prompt them back to offices. Will the lure of free heating free phone charging, and even free showers be enough to make reluctant office workers head back to city centres. Women's Hour is hosting debates about whether it's disgusting or not to shave in the shower at your gym to save money on bathing at home. I listened to a show the other day that was speaking to community-based charities about how they were supporting people to cut down on energy bills and still eat well. One had held a fundraiser to buy crockpots, an energy-efficient way of cooking healthy food. They raised enough money to buy 250 of them. It's astonishing, this. The UK in 2022. How swiftly have we moved from fundraisers to buy cooking equipment for families in developing countries to buying families for families in Liverpool? So quickly have we moved from food banks to warm banks. New phrases enter the lexicon as curiosities but quickly become standard, unsurprisingly understood descriptors. In the pandemic, we suddenly became fluid in aerosol transmission and social distancing. Now it's these warm banks and the use of our workplaces as de facto warm banks. This time, we really must make an effort not to normalise these words. Food banks have become a fixed part of the third sexual landscape, but success for food banks is their demise, not their proliferation. On the picket lines this week, there was one response to the question of why workers were moved to take industrial action. The cost of living crisis. From east coast to west coast, Strikers spoke of the fear of running out of money, of not being able to feed the children, of not being able to keep a roof over their head. I spoke to several people with elderly parents who, they worry, will not survive. People are taking quite seriously, talking quite seriously about being afraid of those they love dying. Not in a hyperbolic manner, in quite a genuine anxious way. 
fear, anxiety, feelings of being overwhelmed and no light at the end of the tunnel. The pandemic required meaningful, practical support, but it was also largely acknowledged that mental health would suffer alongside physical health. The same is true of the cost of living crisis. One of the most vital ways of giving the country ease is effective leadership, but again, no light at the end of the tunnel there. Had we noticed Boris Johnson was back from holiday? It's striking that his two overseas summer sojourns during a crisis went unremarked upon while Nicola Sturgeon's day in Copenhagen earned her pelters for turning her back while energy bills rise and the streets pile with rubbish. Much of the ire is general opposition to the First Minister, but it is also because hands-on manoeuvres are expected of a competent leader. They are not expected of Johnston. He's viewed as so utterly duff that comments he made as an analogy about long-term cost-saving from nuclear power were misinterpreted as wildly poor cost-of-living advice. And almost no one thought to question it because the misinterpretation seemed just like something Johnson would say. Surprisingly, everyone, by making a public statement, the Prime Minister said nuclear is cheap by comparison with hydrocarbons. He used then said, by way of explanation, that an old kettle might cost £20 to replace, but it would save you £10 a year on your electricity bill. Of course, replacing old and inefficient appliances is a good idea, but perhaps he might have thought something slightly less cloth-eared, or even chosen something that might mean a, make a meaningful difference to a household, such as a washing machine. The current situation has echoes of the pandemic, but with no glimmer of light. There is no financial vaccine coming and no focal point for hope. Those already struggling will suffer, while the financially stable will experience instability for the first time. Instead, this is a fiscal event that will take years to resolve. A black hole of political leadership, while the, government, the current government is mothballed, has allowed TV personalities move into the space where a prime minister and her cabinet should be, and charities too, yet again, bridge gaps on the social safety net. What long-term effect will this have on the national psyche? A certain portion of Britain loves a blitz spirit. All make do and mend and dig for victory. This is not a war. It's a crisis. Crisis needs leaders. Our next Prime Minister is leaning towards tax cuts and away from green energy. Moves counterintuitive to solving the country's current problems. Yet we need leadership that deals with immediate struggles while also looking forward to a long-term future and backwards to avoid repeating past errors. We'll be asked to keep calm and carry on. Instead of calm, though, this may finally be the rock bottom reached before a rise of repolitization and organization of a public that finally, finally has had enough. 
Hello, this is your reader Jackie reading the Herald on Monday the 5th of September 2022. News. EU experts in warning over language skills shortage among Scots. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. Scotland may struggle to participate fully in the EU in future years because of a lack of skills and relevant knowledge among the country's workforce, according to leading Brussels experts. Dr Fabian Zuleg, Chief Executive of the European Policy Centre, which is based in the Belgian capital, gave the warning amidst a sharp downward trend in school pupils studying French, German and Spanish at higher level. His concerns were echoed by fellow EU expert Anthony Salomon, who said a declining number of skilled linguists would be deeply problematic for Scotland as a new EU member. Dr Zulig urged the Scottish Government to invest in language teaching as well as in specialised university level courses about EU policy to ensure there continues to be a sufficient number of people with the required skills to work in the European Civil Service. The senior expert also called for support to be given to students wishing to study on the continent, including at the College of Europe, which prepares graduates to work in EU institutions and in member states. It has bases in Bruges and Warsaw. And he also urged Scottish ministers to establish a process to allow talented students to be recruited under the civil service fast stream to spend part of their career working in EU institutions. The programme was paused by the UK government after Brexit. Proficiency in European languages is certainly an advantage when applying for positions in the European civil service and for promotion, he told the Herald on Sunday. There are also a number of positions that require languages, for example, when it comes to interpretation or the lawyers who translate legal texts into all EU languages. But it goes further than this. You also need people with EU policy-related knowledge and expertise, for example, in EU law. For the moment, Scotland could draw on a pool of people who fulfil these criteria, but over time it is likely to diminish as both demand for such skills and their supply, ideally from an early age onwards, is reducing. For Scotland, there should be an investment in such skills, enabling as much exchange and interaction as possible, especially since Erasmus will no longer be available. In future, full engagement and support for students going to the College of Europe would be important, and Scotland needs a European fast stream as well as retaining the fast stream in contrast to the rest of the UK. Dr Zulig's comments were echoed by Mr Salomon, who said good knowledge of different European languages is a crucial requirement to work for the EU institutions. Candidates for the EU civil service normally have to speak at least two EU official languages, usually the native language plus one other. To green promotion, civil servants often need to demonstrate knowledge of a third language as well, he said. The EU currently has 24 official languages, 
of those, English, French, German, Italian and Spanish, are regularly the most sought after. If Scotland became an independent state and joined the EU, it would need qualified candidates for the EU civil service, who had a solid grounding in the functioning of the EU and were proficient in these languages. He added, declining numbers of Scottish learners of European languages would therefore be deeply problematic for Scotland as a new EU member state. A lack of candidates with language qualifications would hamper its ability to fully participate in the workings of the EU. Moreover, Scotland would need speakers of European and global languages for its own diplomatic service. Regardless of the constitutional question, knowledge of languages is essential to Scotland in fostering understanding of different countries, facilitating business and trade opportunities, providing pathways to art, literature and wider culture, and in offering insights to alternative perspectives. If language learning and education shrinks in Scotland, it will have real-world consequences and any future rebuilding of expertise will take years. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is planning to hold an independence referendum on October the 19th next year and, if successful, seek membership of the EU for an independent Scotland. However, it is unclear if the vote will take place given UK government refusal to agree to a vote and legal uncertainty whether she can use Holyrood powers to bring about a referendum. The Supreme Court will rule on the legality of this matter next month. Should it decide Holyrood has not got the powers to hold an independence vote, Ms Sturgeon has said she will use the next general election as a de facto independence referendum. A total of just 505 pupils sat higher German this year out of 188,220 higher entries across the curriculum, figures from the Scottish Qualifications Authority, SQA, revealed last month. The number was a drop from 780 in 2020 and there were 186,227 entries across all higher subjects. There were also significant falls in the number of pupils taking French and Spanish at higher level, despite the increase in overall entries. Some 3,165 pupils took higher level French in 2020, with the figure dropping to 2,500 this year. In 2020, a total of 2,900 students entered higher Spanish, with the number falling to 2,400 and 65 this year. The reasons for the significant falls in pupils taking modern languages at higher level are not clear, but the issue of availability of language teachers in schools was considered in a highly critical report by Holyrood's Education Committee in 2019. Professor Jim Scott identified languages as one area being squeezed at the senior phase of school from the curriculum. We probably have five problems. We have a modern languages problem, an ICT problem and a STEM problem because of a drop that was caused by structural changes in Scottish education, he told the committee.
Professor Sheila Dixon, Professor of German at the University of Glasgow, said she believed young Scots were outward-looking and positive about the EU, but weren't being given sufficient opportunity at school to study languages. Increasingly, schools are just not offering German at all, or saying that students have to do it by themselves, and there are restricted offerings in modern languages generally, she said. It's a lottery. It depends what school a pupil is at, what year he or she is in. You can now start languages at Glasgow University as a complete beginner, but obviously it is a huge ask for someone to start as a beginner and work through to honours over five years. Committed and talented linguists can do it, but it's hard. She said that Brexit and the UK's withdrawal from the EU's Erasmus Education Exchange Programme had made it harder for university language students to secure places abroad to study for a year. Universities are trying really hard to maintain partnerships with those in the EU with bilateral agreements, she added. It absolutely matters that we have people who can speak other languages. For instance, with German, we want to do business with Germany and while a German company may be perfectly happy to have a chat in English, but they are not going to sign a contract in English. They want it in German. If we have people with language skills, it can put us ahead and if we don't, it puts up barriers. Why should a German company or cultural institution exchange with us if there is someone in another country who is happy to engage with them in German? Professor Dixon added that many companies in Scotland needed linguists to help with overseas trade and export matters, while other professional people often needed to speak other languages to take up placements overseas. Some 32,169 civil servants are employed by the European Commission, with staff coming from all over the EU 27 member states, according to official figures published in January this year. The highest proportion of staff are from Belgium, 14% due to the headquarters being based in the country's capital, with Italians making up 13% and French, Spanish and Germans 10, 8 and 6% respectively. A spokesperson for the European Commission said new recruits had to have a thorough knowledge of one of the EU languages and a satisfactory knowledge of another language during their selection and recruitment process. She added, in addition, officials are required to demonstrate before their first promotion after recruitment their ability to work in a third language. This information is part of the staff member personal file. A Scottish Government spokesperson said it is important for young people to learn European and global languages in addition to gaining an understanding of worldwide issues and cultures. This is why we have invested over £50 million since 2013 in the 1 plus 2 languages learning policy, which sees every child learn two languages in addition to their own native tongue while at primary school. This culture shift in our approach has supported young people's awareness of foreign languages 
culture and global issues, it has now been embedded across Scottish schools. The pass rate among Scotland students in languages is higher than other subjects. When comparing to other parts of the UK, the proportion of French, German and Spanish entries to hires was greater than the equivalent entries to A-levels. Scotland also ranked among the top performing nations in the 2018 programme for International Student Assessment, PISA, for Global Competence. Over the next year, we will review our approach to support students who have benefited from the 1 plus 2 languages policy to fulfil their aspirations in their qualifications and beyond. This article is by Kathleen Nutt. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 5th of September 2022, from the sports section, ex-Hibs starlet Josh Doig next first Serie A goal for Verona by Ewan Payton. Former Hibs star Josh Doig scored his first goal in Serie A at the weekend. The 20-year-old signed for Hellas Verona in a big money move this summer. The Italian side paid around £3 million to the Easter Road outfit for the talented left-back. And Doig has made a great start to life in the continent. The defender slotted home nicely to get Verona a 2-1 win over Sampdoria. The away side had the lead after 40 minutes, but Emil Aduro equalised for Verona. Then it was Doig's time to shine as he stroked home from close range to score the winner. And that piece was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 5th of September 2022, from the Voices section, Herald Diary by Lauren Jackson. Why all that jazz has got political tones? Music fan Linda Smallwood attempted to persuade her boyfriend to visit a jazz club with her when the couple visited New York last week. Her suggestion did not meet with any great enthusiasm. I hate listening to jazz, confessed the bow. All the instruments seem to be squabbling with each other. It's just a loud, incoherent argument that goes on forever. You know, the musical equivalent of those Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak debates. Wild West Woe. More political pontifications. Diary correspondent Brian Sunderland is less than delighted about a weekend comment made by the same Ms Truss mentioned in the above story. In a TV interview, she admitted the nation faces serious challenges. If nothing else, says Brian, Truss proves herself the mistress of understatement. Saying that about the UK is like claiming that Custer's Last Stand was a game of cowboys and Indians that got a wee bit out of hand. Punctual pause. Grammatically savvy Jennifer Curran points out, commas are just speed bumps warning your eyes to slow down. Pure filth. Art fan Didi Cuddy notes that not everyone is appreciating the expedition running at Glasgow CCA, which is titled We Are Compost, Composting the Wee, and they've all 60 tonnes of dirt been smeared across the entire floor of the main gallery. What's going on here? inquired one BMW's visitor for the specially trained cultivators engaged in raking coffee grounds, pizza ash and cocoa husks into the artwork. We're making soil, came the reply. The outraged punter retorted, Leave that to God, then stormed off. P.S. D.D. also points out the gallery is regularly doused with warm juice, which is just like regular juice, only warmer.
Fine dining. Glasgow is rightly celebrated as a city of sophisticated cuisine, where a hearty repast always awaits a household visitor. Reader Edward Lee was in a bus in the city's east end when he overheard one bloke approvingly say to a pal sitting next to him, Oh aye, Jennifer puts on a right good spread. We went to her flat the other night and there was Larbini, Lambrini, Pringles and a Mars bar waiting for me on the coffee table. Bye bye Sly. Film bus Steve Rutigan tells us most authoritatively, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is the only movie in the Rocky series that doesn't feature Sylvester Stallone. Dream on. Distressed reader Henry Mitchell gets in touch to reveal, I keep having these dreams that I'm a horse. That's five nights on the trot now. And today's Herald Diary was compiled by Lauren Jackson. Recorded from the Herald on the 6th of September 2022. From the sports section. Recorded by Amy. Robert Snodgrass completes free transfer move to Hearts by David Urban. Robert Snodgrass has completed a free transfer move to sign for Hearts. The former Scotland international agreed a deal at Tynecastle after leaving Luton over the summer. Motherwell has been keen on a move for 34-year-old Snodgrass, but the winger is headed for Edinburgh instead. Snodgrass had signed a one-year deal to join Robbie Nielsen's squad, and the Hearts boss is thrilled to bolster his squad with Snodgrass, who was Premier League and international experience. He told the club website, I'm really pleased that we've been able to bring Robert in for the season. He's got a huge amount of experience and has played at the highest level, both domestically and for his country. The knowledge he'll bring to the squad, as well as his qualities on the pitch, will be invaluable, and I'm looking forward to working with him. And Joe Savage added, Robert had offers elsewhere, but after we spoke to him, he decided that Hearts was the place to be, and we're delighted that he's here. He's a household name in Scotland and has spent years playing at the top level in England, so it's too good an opportunity to pass up, and as we've stated in the past, we'll always bring in quality over quantity and wait for the right moment to do so. Robert coming in gives Robbie more options and squad depth for our domestic campaign, which is hugely important for us. We've got some really talented young players at the club, and I hope they're able to learn from Robert because he really does have a lot to offer. That article was by David Irvin. Recorded from the Herald on the 6th of September 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Tyson Fury offers Anthony Joshua 60-40 per steal for British title clash. By the Herald Sport. Tyson Fury says he is willing to offer Anthony Joshua 40% of the purse for a proposed all-British WBC World Heavyweight title clash before the end of the year. Fury made the claim in a video on social media having called out his rival, saying he has left Joshua with no excuses not to take the bout. Joshua's promoter, Eddie Hearn, expressed scepticism about Fury's initial offer, also made on social media on Monday, but he was willing to discuss it with his counterpart, Frank Warren. Fury said, I'm being bombarded with messages on how much I'm going to pay AJ. Everyone is saying 80, 20, 70, 30, 75, 25. The actual answer is I've offered him 60, 40, 40% of this amazing fight because I want this to happen. He doesn't have any excuses now not to take it. He can't say I've lowballed him and offered him 20 or 30%. I've offered his people 40%, take it or leave it. Joshua suffered a straight, second straight defeat, Alcassandra's Yusik, in Saudi Arabia last month, but Fury's hope of landing about with the Ukrainian were dashed when Yusik said he did not intend to fight again this year. 
Heron had previously said they were considering options for a return for Joshua early next year, but suggested if the offer from Fury's camp stood up, then it could happen. Fury's outstanding at getting the public to believe absolute nonsense, Heron said on TalkSport. It worries me what people actually people do believe if you look at the timeline over the last two or three weeks. It's unbelievably bizarre. Personally, I don't believe Fury is serious about this, but if he is, which I said to the Warrens last night, 100% we will sit down and make the fight. I would love to get really excited about this because it's the fight that I can get stopped in the street for more than any fight that could be made, and it's a fight that AJ has wanted for a long time. Don't forget, we signed for this fight last year before the arbitration forced the Deontay Wilder fight for Tyson Fury. The message is quite clear from AJ. We don't want to get involved in a backwards and forwards. We want the fight. It's the fight he's wanted for a long time. We had plans for the Usyk defeat to come back in December and then go again in March, get active and get the rhythm going again and then try and fight the world heavyweight title. But I know, having spoken to AJ, if that fight is there and they're serious, which I have my doubts about, but the, for the good of trying to make it happen, let's believe Tyson Fury. I said to George Warren from Queensbury last night, get the details and the offer over to us and I'll take it to AJ. He's ready to go. We didn't expect this opportunity, but it's a great opportunity to fight for the world title and the biggest fight in boxing, and we'll definitely look at it. Fury's promoter, Frank Warren, said they were set to send a written offer across to Heron on Tuesday, with a proposed bout to take place in the UK and hopefully in November. Warren added on TalkSport, It does have made the approach to give AJ a great opportunity to get himself back into the top level against the world champion Tyson. He's willing to make that voluntary defence, so we'll t- send the offer across today, and then they'll have to look at it and decide whether they want to grab this with both hands. To his credit, he has come out saying that he's up for it. I'm not bad them or the other side. All we're interested in is doing is making this fight. That article was by the Herald Sport. The Herald, the 6th of September, and the Arts and End section. Funeral for Arcade Fire in Glasgow. Sex Misconduct Claims Spark Boycott But by Martin Williams. Rock band Arcade Fire's Glasgow gig has been hit by an apparent boycott after the band's frontman was accused of sexual misconduct. Some fans started selling the tickets at up to half the face value online, while others sought refunds as singer-songwriter Feist walked away from her support slot on the Canadian band's world tour. Four people have accused Wynne Butler of behaving inappropriately, with allegations including forceful touching and unwanted sexual text messages. The allegations, which Butler denies, says, saying each relationship was consensual, emerged at the end of last month, shortly before the first date of the band's world tour. There is no news of any police investigation. Feist, who played the first two dates, says she decided to go home. Ticketmaster has had a raft of requests for refunds from fans who no longer wanted to go to the gig at the Ovo Hydro in Glasgow, while others have taken to try and sell theirs for less than half their face value. The Ovo Hydro has said nothing about the staging of the concert. Feist's place was taken by a DJ. 
One fan said, In the light of the sexual misconduct allegations made, I don't feel comfortable attending the gig on September the 5th in Glasgow. I would like to request a refund for my tickets, please. As late as noon on the day of the concert, the tickets resale site Twickets was offering two tickets for the Hydro concert at up to 82% below their face value. One fan was offering two standing tickets for the Glasgow gig for £90, £60 under the face value. Another said, really hope Arcade Fire cancelled this Glasgow show and the rest of the tour. Paid more than I should have for tickets, and with everything that's happened, I'm thinking of not going and like, is that just £150 down the toilet I? That is one narrative. The other takes place within a packed hydro, as a band with a Devil May Care win butler, seemingly supportive and effervescent wife Regine Chassange, and the rest of this irresistible combo do just over an hour and a half of some of the most euphoric art rock music that you will ever hear. In a public statement, Regine Chassange called the musician a good man who cares about this world our bands, his fans, friends and our family. She affirmed her love for him, adding, I know what is in his heart and I know he has never and would never touch a woman without her consent and I am certain he never did. Arcade Fire dead? Well, if they are, this corpse is twitching engagingly and the crowd, well... Remain adoring from the lies, lies, lies chant on a triumphant rebellion lies to the warhose on the unforgettable wake-up finale. It is perhaps weird that at a time when some radio stations in the United States and Canada abruptly stopped playing the group's music in the wake of the furore, some of their most evocative songs here remain on their inimitable debut album called Funeral. It will, in some people's minds, be wrong to be here, applauding a band whose frontman is engulfed in such allegations. As far as we know, he has yet to be arrested or questioned by any law enforcer in relation to any criminal complaint related to the allegations. Can you divorce the allegations from the performance? For thousands in the hydro, it's as if they never happened. For some, like me, who remember the Montreal-based band's first Glasgow gig at the Barrowlands in 2007, just as they were to bring out their second album, Neon Bible, a gig the band themselves remembers as a special gig, it is perhaps easier to bury yourself in the music for the 90 or so minutes and put, off en- put any off-stage activities out of your mind. Perhaps... Fifteen years ago, their explosion of strings, driving percussion and wind butlers imploring vocals in that steamy claustrophobic venue was as intoxicating as it gets and one of the most memorable shows I have been to. They have since carved out a reputation for musical creativity and a desire to examine personal and social issues candidly. What is remarkable is how this band has transcended small venues to become an arena beast, making every gesture, every musical flourish that bit bigger. 
2022, Modern Day Arcade Fire have their sixth studio album, WE, to promote, of course, and none of the smattering of tracks from its sound out of place within the band's glittering back catalogue paraded in Glasgow. They may even nod to Kate Bush's running up the hill in the piano part to the sublime age of anxiety. I and then give a huge lowering and raising of the head to Abba's dancing queen on the crowd pleasing everything now. A quirky new album and a gig highlight Aging of Anxiety 2 Rabbit Hole starts with a tender piano and vocal harmony part before exploding into an addictive slice of electropop. When Butler's only comment of note during the night, apart from the usual crowd-pleasing platitudes, is to say, we are just a bunch of humans doing our best. Make of that what you will. And as he leaves the second mini-stage at the end of the show, he cannot resist a further encore while wandering into the crowd. Accompanied only by a tambourine, he sings Aiko Aiko, the much-covered traditional New Orleans Mardi Gras Indian call and response song. It is a victory chant that the Indians would shout when they went into battle. There is certainly one form of victory on stage in Glasgow. Off stage, it is an entirely different story. That's by Martin Williams. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.